Welcome back to the Bridge Builder Podcast, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, the public policy voice of the Catholic Church in Minnesota. In each episode, we help you connect your Catholic faith with your responsibilities as a faithful citizen and help uh, try to provide resources for you to be a missionary disciple in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio is my co-host, Rachel Herbeck, Minnesota Catholic Conference Outreach and Policy Coordinator. Happy to be here, as always. A big thank you to Relevant Radio 1330 AM for use of their recording studio, and to our sponsor, the Minnesota State Chapter, uh, excuse me, Minnesota State Council of the Knights of Columbus. The Knights of Columbus are building the domestic church. In today's podcast, we're talking with Leah Labresco, the author of Building the Benedict Option, about what the Benedict Option is and is not, and the practical steps you can take to live intentional discipleship in your life. Then in our classic Catholic social teaching segment, it's the 10th anniversary of Pope Benedict's address to representatives of the world of culture in France, where he discusses uh, the ways in which culture is formed first by people who are seeking God above all else. And Rachel, in our Bricklayer segment, will talk about uh, what's happened now that the election's passed, and you've also got some practical tips for our listeners to put their faith into action. Yeah, so we're going to talk about how to start engaging your newly elected officials, how important that is, and some really simple ways, whether you voted for them or not, how you can begin to build bridges with the new people in office, whether it's city council or Minnesota House members or new senators, um, how you can start building those relationships. And finally, we finish out, as usual, with a bit of sacred music, not performed by us, but by the incredible voices from choirs around Minnesota. Now, you may have heard of the book, The Benedict Option. It's uh, characterized by some uh, as one of the most important religion books of the last decade. Its author was Rod Dreher, and this book has generated a ton of debate and discussion about what does it mean to live intentional discipleship in a hostile, ambient, secular culture. So, Fortunately, people are doing the shovel work uh, to help uh, us understand in a more deeply way, deep, deeper way what the Benedict Option is, what does it mean for Christians in a modern secular culture, and how do we employ that and live it in our own lives. We're grateful then to be joined today by one of the people doing that initial shovel work and taking uh, that thesis of the Benedict Option and bringing it down to the really practical level. We're joined by Leah Bresco, author of Building the Benedict Option. Leah is a popular writer and speaker, uh, really a great apologist for the faith. She's got a fascinating personal story as well, which I hope we can hear a little bit about, but in the to begin, welcome, Leah. Great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me on. Well, uh, again, you like I mentioned, you've got a fascinating personal story, your journey, own journey to Catholicism. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, what drew you to the church after identifying as an atheist, and what inspired this uh, exciting new book? Well, I did grow up as an atheist in New York, uh, and it was when I went to college and I met smart, weird Christians that I kind of... <laughs> They're always weird. Interested. They should be, right? <laughs> oh, they were very weird, you know. I became more interested in the faith, and ultimately, you know, it was a belief I had as an atheist, um, a belief in morality as objective and transcendent, something we learn about, not something we can make up, that ultimately drew me all the way into the Church as I kind of explored what it means philosophically, uh, what that requires of us. And for this book, Building the Benedict Option, you know, when I converted, people really took care of me as a new convert, trying to make sure I had people to pray with, folks I could ask questions. But, you know, I think more and more 
a number of Catholics find themselves disconnected from Catholic community. And my focus is over the next two weeks or two months, what can you do to pray more with others and to deepen mm-hmm. your friendships with other Christians? Yeah, so as Jason was saying, he was talking about the book, The Benedict Option um, by Rodrigo. Many people have heard that term, but aren't really familiar with um, the original book or what that actually means. Can you explain um, just for our listeners exactly what is meant by choosing the Benedict Option? Sure. You know, I think the my favorite definition actually comes from Ross Dowsett, who said it's a ratchet effect. It's taking one step deeper into prayer and community from wherever you are. Mm. So, you know, a daily Mass going Catholic, that one step further might be different than someone who's kind of been fallen away from the faith and is finding their way back. But it's wherever you are being more closely connected to God so that we can receive from Him what we need to be connected to others. Now, people, Leah, are often confusing the Benedict Option mainly because they haven't read the book or haven't read your book or have just been hearing things. They, they think of it as withdrawal, like with the, the whole monastic imagery, right, of cloistered life. Um, but the, the book in your book certainly doesn't counsel withdrawal. Withdrawal, as you've said, it's more of a ratchet effect. It's a deepening, uh, more intentional way of being a disciple. Uh, why is there a common mistake that we often think of the Benedict Option as, as being more cloistered or sectarian? I think um, a little of it is that there is an impulse in all of us that, you know, if we could only find a pure enough space, if we could kick out everyone who's worse than us, our lives would get a lot better. You know, and this is mostly false just because we'd still be left with ourselves, still sinful, uh, still struggling. Um, But I think, you you know, when it looks like withdrawal, that's also because... When we choose God, sometimes we don't choose other things because choosing God doesn't leave room for them. And that's not turning our back on the world, but it is sometimes turning our back on worldly things. You know, picking up uh, a rosary for your commute may mean uh, not picking the podcast or the social media you'd otherwise been scrolling through. But, you know, it's not only or ever about just rejecting something. It's about choosing God. Yeah, I think that's a great distinction of not rejecting the world, but rejecting the things of the world, which I think helps with um, with some of that conflu- confusion. So your book in particular um, highlights instead that right the Benedict Option, like you said, is about this deeper, more intentional engagement. Um, and so how does that look different? How is the Benedict Option different than what Christians are already doing on the cultural plane and especially in parish life? Well, to be honest, it's not that different. You know, I think the Benedict Option, like the new evangelization, is putting a name on something that's always been important to Christian life, but kind of taking one aspect of the way we're called to live in the world as a focus, and the new evangelization kind of re-evangelizing those who have been exposed to Christianity, but indifferent or fallen away from it. And the Benedict Option, just seeking out the normal parts of community that we've kind of lost, um, it kind of focuses our efforts. Um, But, you know, there's nothing actually that radical about the Benedict Option or more radical than the project of Christianity as a whole, to love everyone as God loves us, which is quite radical. Mm -hmm. Now, since this idea of the Benedict Option has been popularized, there have been a million articles with people laying out different options. The the Jeremiah option uh, or the, you know, this option or that option. And it's become sort of a cottage industry of certain options. But, you know, one of the things we, tr- we do often, the mistakes we make is 
we get a, an idea in our head about what it means to be a disciple or pick up on a theme and then try to think that everyone else is required to live it in exactly the same way that we are. And oftentimes it's because we're trying to make ourselves feel better about the choices that we pursue that are often prudential. But from your perspective, is everyone called to live the Benedict option or is it more like an evangelical council where we each have unique vocations and ways of living that out? I think we're all called to love and serve others, and we're called to hospitality, and what that will look like will look different, not only just for different individuals, but for the same person at different periods of their life. You know, the kind of hospitality my husband and I offer to people as, you know, two folks in New York City with no living children may will be really different than the hospitality we'll offer if we're in the future no longer living in a studio apartment and have a bunch of kids. So I think one thing that I try and emphasize, especially in the, the time scale I'm focused on in building the Benedict Auction, that kind of the next two weeks, the next two months, is where you are now, what could God be calling you to do? And don't assume that's what he's calling you to for your whole life. Yeah, and following up you know, on that, and then also going from something that you said that kind of helped inspire you write this book, is that when you first converted, that people really took care of you. Um, I was talking to a friend recently who he just came to, into the church last Easter, um, and it was kind of on this concept of hospitality, and um, he was formerly not denominational, but he said Catholics, he loves being Catholic, but he said Catholics love events. Um, he said, we love having events, but I, I rarely ever just get invited over to someone's house to hang out on a random night, you know, or to have dinner on a random night. And so we were talking about this tension there. And so even on a practical level, can you just share a little bit about, um, even in your own story of how other Catholics took care of you in a way that made you feel like you were part of that broader community? I think one of the most generous things people did is simply to pray with me aloud, mm-hmm. um, which meant so much to me because I didn't know how to pray, and I didn't really want to learn prayer only out of books. Mm-hmm. You know, we think about uh, the family being the school of love and the school of prayer, that we learn to pray ideally from watching our parents pray, by hearing them pray with us. But I think one of the biggest gifts isn't, you know, a big event, though I'll admit I throw a fair number of them myself. (laughs) It's simply praying with others, whether it's a set prayer like a rosary, or inviting someone into the way you yourself speak with God, frankly and personally, you know, and sharing who we love with each other. And it was hearing examples of prayer that really taught me how to pray. Leah, what do you think, just giving kind of a preview of your book here, you know, folks are always looking for the practical steps, right? Just tell me what I need to do to live the Benedict Option. You know, give me. The, and you've written, it seems, that book. What What are some things that, um, you know, you've mentioned uh, the, the dinners and the hospitality, and I think that's a cornerstone. That's wonderful and absolutely right. But what are some other things that you're recommending or for people who are just trying to take that step? Um, you mentioned prayer and hospitality, but but what else uh, is really tangible? Well, here's, here's a small thing that listeners might be able to even do today without much planning which is I've been trying to not part from Christian friends without praying with them, mm-hmm. even if it's it. simply, you know, and our Father together offered for our intentions. But I find myself frequently in the position of being together socially with other Christians and maybe talking about God, but not by default talking to God at all, or of kind of asking that we'll pray for each other but still not actually sharing prayer. And I think one small ratchet effect step, it's just that when you're gathered together, gather even just for a moment in His name and make space for that shared prayer between you and people you love. Yeah, so what is, you know, we're talking about these 
really practical things that we can do. Um, and I, I love that, just praying in our Father together. I think that's so, so beautiful and such a simple thing. And you mentioned the new evangelization as well and kind of how they were similar. And kind of combating the misunderstandings of the Benedict Option is leaving the culture. What do you see as the effect in the culture of living the Benedict Option? When, cult- when um, Christians really live as Christians and commit to the Benedict Option, what is the effect on the culture, do you think? I think one blessing is that it lets people who are kind of at the fringes of our faith tell us how to evangelize them. Mm-hmm. When we put our faith, you know, publicly, but not always in an evangelistic mode, just that it's part of our normal life, and so our friends who are part of our life encounter it in the same way they encounter our favorite books, our favorite movies. They still hear a little bit about our favorite things, and it lets my friends kind of choose what questions they want to ask me. You know, even which is when they come over to my house, I've got, you know, icons and a crucifix up, and it leaves anyone free to go, who are those folks? Like, why did you pick those saints? Which is the kind of question someone can be curious about without thinking of themselves as curious about conversion. I think the more we kind of give those little invitations where all someone has to go, is like, what is that? Uh, the more opportunities we have to evangelize without <laughs> leaving someone feeling bullied or pressured. You may have heard, Leah, that uh, in the second part of this podcast, we're going to discuss Pope Benedict's address uh, to the world representatives of the world of culture uh, that took place in Paris 10 years ago, 12th September 2008. One of my very favorite addresses of Pope Benedict, and I don't think you can talk about the Benedict Option without reference to uh, our, our previous Holy Father, the Pontiff Emeritus, Benedict And In that address, he talks about how monks didn't set out to change culture, but what they did was set out to seek God and pursue that in a really specific and intentional way. But in doing so, they ended up indirectly transforming culture, civilization, economics, agrarian life, all these different things um, came from monastic life. And so though we say that the Benedict option is not about cloistering yourself or closing yourself off or withdrawing, the monastic world do does have something to teach us, I think. Maybe you could say a little bit about that and comment on the, you know, the interplay of the Benedict Option and the concept of monasticism. Sure, and I think it's important to remember that monastics and cloistered nuns are themselves not withdrawing from the world, even Amen. though they are That's right. literally withdrawing from the world. But the point of their life is to give themselves over in prayer for the world. They remain intensely interested in it and serving out of love for all of us. You know, and I think, you know, you know, Pope is absolutely right that what we really do when we change the world is that we don't have necessarily a 15-step plan um, and, you know, a full idea of what the new renewed world will look like. What we have is a passion for God and a docility before him and what he asks of us. And by giving ourselves to him, we become his hands and his feet to make the world into what he desires it to be. What is the Benedict option, or what role can this message and about intentionality, about prayer, um, in terms of the discussions around evangelizing youth, uh, what role do you think the Benedict option can play with regard to conversations around uh, the evangelization of young peoples, especially in a secular, technocratic technology-driven society like ours today? Well, one thing I hope the bishops are talking about at the Synod is you know, about all the things that young people are disconnected from, not solely faith, but family, friends, the way that kind of a frequently moving um, lifestyle forces people to live 
being uprooted again and again, and it breaks their connection to their faith and to their family um, and to many traditions that sustain them. You know, and I think one thing Catholicism has to offer is just simply our emphasis that these things aren't optional in the middle of a society and employers that kind of tell you, you know, you can wait, like you can have a family when you're 30, you don't have to think about it before then, and we're going to work you really hard right now, but you'll have friends again once you've been promoted two times, then you get to have friends, then you'll get to sleep. And Catholicism says, this this is inhuman. Um, People must have leisure, they must have Sabbath, they must have love. And I think it's you know important to recognize that there are many parts of our society that are an attack on Catholicism, sort of incidentally, because they're already an attack on everything. Um, and Catholicism gets swept up in the same fray that's encouraging you know, women to just freeze their eggs and wait indefinitely for the hope of children for the convenience of their employers. I was... Um just on a plane with a friend who was actually finishing up your book and um, we were just talking about how practical it was and Jason was talking about hospitality and just following up on you know what you were just saying what is the role of of leisure really in the Benedict option and how that looks with your family and friends well one of the ways I think about it is leisure gives a space for the Holy Spirit to work man I think about this particularly because my instinct you, know, you said someone's like Catholics like events, but not hanging out. I'm completely there. So I always have to temper my own kind of instincts to have people over in a more casual way without a plan for the day. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's in moments of leisure where I'm not trying as hard to control our whole encounter that the Holy Spirit has more room to work and a friend can tell me what they actually need from me instead of what I plan to give them. And too, I love like I just love again and again the simplicity of it all. And like you said, it just is going back to the simplistic roots of really Christianity and how does a Christian love? And I think it's so important in a time where we're thinking of, you know, what can we do in the new evangelization? What's the new ministry? What's the new big thing? Um, so what would you say is kind of the connection between simplicity and humility here? And how can we as Catholics who are on fire um, really step into this in, in a good way? Well, I think I think the connection really is that, you know, we're Catholics. Like, we've been given everything true we need for our salvation since the Gospel, since Christ's incarnation. Um, there is no new news we're waiting for to tell us how to live. Mm-hmm. And if you want to invite people over and never call it the Benedict Option, that's fine, right? <laughs> it's, not, it's not new. It's just reminding almost all kind of spiritual reading I've done has been most helpful not in telling me something new that wasn't in the Gospels, but in reminding me of what I'm neglecting. Hmm. And I think, you know, whenever we have the temptation, well, if I need to do this, I have to do it in a new, important way. You know, most new things are heretical. Uh, (laughs) Mostly, we have all the truths we need to care for each other. We're not waiting for any further profit. Yeah, I'm trying to prevent myself from guffawing at that last comment about most new things, but I think it's absolutely right. Um, You know, we do have all the means of holiness at our disposal, and only we can separate ourselves from the love of Christ, right? So amen to that. One one final question, Leah, for you, given that um, we are helping people bring the faith into their work as missionary disciples in the public arena, we know that politics is downstream of culture, and the Benedict Option, one might say, is a, a blueprint for a modest cultural renewal, but where do you think that the Benedict Option can play a role in uh, what the Church calls us to as faithful citizens or missionary disciples in the public arena? 
Well, I think the more we gather together with people and kind of form uh, stronger ties with them, the more we'll have to give of ourselves to others if it's kind of, wow, it's great having dinner together. You know, we should really, you know, also go feed others at the soup kitchen. We should really also go to our local city council meeting, you know, to ask what we can do um, for the growing number of homeless people who are on our streets just to even learn more to know what to be active about. Um, but I think there's also just a benefit to Catholic witness in politics because often we find ourselves kind of arguing for no policy that's on the table right now, but for something, you know, that's not even being discussed because people have given up on it. You know, you know the argument, it shouldn't be so hard to have your family live with you when they're old and sick. Um, it should be possible to have support to care for dying family members at home. It's not a, a hot-button political issue. Um, it just seems like the idea that we can't care for each other has won. I think Catholics sometimes just speak up in terms of things that aren't political controversies, but um, have been won by the wrong side, and we reawaken those questions. A little bit of uh, seeing with the eyes of Christ uh, and what we call subsidiarity in the Catholic tradition of uh, addressing problems at the place where they can be best addressed at the local level mm-hmm. at a place where we can actually make an impact. Not everyone can make an impact on a global level, but everyone can make an impact on a local level. And that, uh, Leah, I think is exactly right in terms of where people can make a difference and live that Benedict option, perhaps in the context of faithful citizenship. We are blessed to have been with you today and uh, speaking about the Benedict option and your book, Building the Benedict Option, and uh, just a blessing. And we encourage your uh, encourage you in your work. And thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for having me on. God bless you. Thanks so much. And we'll be back in a moment with our segment on classic Catholic social teaching. Ten years ago, Almost exactly 10 years ago, uh, His Holiness Pope Benedict gave an important address on a trip to France and Paris at the College of the Cistercians, the College de Bernardin, and it was a medieval school for uh, Cistercian monks and uh, a place where they sought to deepen their vocation and their learning uh, in the monastic life. And this was an appropriate venue for Pope Benedict to give an address to representatives of the World Meeting of Culture uh, monastic life being a formative influence on the culture of Europe and indeed throughout the West, and it continues today even globally. There are Cistercian monasteries, uh, even in there are many of them actually even in Japan. So the culture of monasticism continues to shape culture globally and throughout the world. Now you might ask why we've chosen this document um, as the classic Catholic social teaching when it's really focused on uh, the monastic life, um, but it really digs into the the, the driving force behind the monastic life, the monastic vocation, and its way and the way in which it shaped culture. And Pope Benedict highlights that the monks didn't set out to change culture. They set out to seek God, and they to do so in an intentional way, in a deeper way, the Cistercian order being a reform of the, or a deeper way of living out the rule of St. Benedict, uh, one of the many important monastic reforms in the medieval period, but seeking God in a deeper, uh, purer, and renewed life but in the end having a great impact on the broader culture. And I think that's a lesson for us, Rachel, um, in our work in the apostolic life is seeking God first mm-hmm. and then letting that form how we shape the earthly realm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and I think right now, too, this is so important. And we just talked, touched on it a bit with Leah, but as you said, they weren't seeking out to, to create a culture. They were seeking God. And I think that's so important um, in kind of our times right now is they weren't seeking to make a big change or a big movement or to be noticed or recognized for doing something big in the world. They were seeking God. And I love what uh, how Benedict puts it. He says, um, they were searching for what was essential. They wanted to go from what was inessential to essential. So what are the essential things, but not just here on earth, but through the eyes of heaven? You know, so thinking with um, with a goal of heaven, what are the things here on earth that are essential? And we want to do those things. And doing those things and seeking God created culture because it's what we're made to do. And it culture, of course, as we discussed a little bit ago, is upstream of politics. Mm -hmm. Politics, uh, scary or exciting, depending on your perspective. Politics, of course, is a reflection of our culture. So Mm -hmm. we see a brokenness uh, in our political sphere, and uh, one can argue a brokenness in our culture. So it's responsible. uh, We have the responsibility for transforming culture, but we can only do so uh, by having the right sense of cult, right? Mm -hmm. And pursuing God, fostering religion, uh, as the basis of that. It's no surprise that uh, along these same lines, a very famous book of spirituality from the last century, The Soul of the Apostolate, was written by uh, Dom Chatard, a Cistercian monk of the strict observance, a Trappist, uh, but really a, a guidebook of spirituality for busy people. Mm-hmm. So it's not such that uh, prayer and the life of faith is a distraction, but is really the font out of which an effective apostolate goes and grows, excuse me, and that goes as well for our work in the public arena. If we don't center it and root it in prayer, then it isn't going to be as fruitful uh, or evangelizing or effective. Mm-hmm. And how do we, talking about how do we form our minds and our hearts in, as you're saying, the right cult, you know, how what the right culture is. And I love Benedict talks about a good amount in this speech is scripture, you know, the word of God. The word of God is the reality that informs our hearts and our minds. I love he, he quotes Gregory the Great and he says, he describes that as a sharp stabbing pain which tears open our sleeping soul and awaking and awakens us and makes us attentive to the essential reality of God. And so scripture is that essential reality of God. And that's what, um, you know, the Benedictines use to really f- inform their sense of reality. Um, and as we, we were talking about in a previous podcast, and this might make you go listen, but really is, is the world informing our reality of God or is the reality of God informing the world? Yeah, how are we formed, right? Mm-hmm. Is it, are we formed in the word? Are we formed in the sacraments? Or are we formed by the culture and the, uh, the broader ambient and oftentimes secular hostile culture outside us? We were just talking with Leah Labresco about uh, the be- building the Benedict option and what that means. And, you know, the, we conversed about how we really have all the means of holiness at our disposal, mm-hmm. right? We have the word, we have the sacraments, and only we can separate ourselves from the love of Christ. And being able to take a, a, a almost a monastic pose uh, and being able to, cl- to block out some of the many distractions and focus our prayer and our souls on God as that renewing force that mm-hmm. can help us then evangelize the broader culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the word as, you know, the logos as this living living and active. And of course, we know Christ was incarnated as the logos to become man. And so really, as we were talking about with Leah before, as simple as things as hospitality or having people over for dinner, how Christ is incarnated into the human experience. So even the smallest practical details can be, 
evangelical, you know, or an experience of the word incarnate. Recognizing too that there is no there is no order, there's no justice in the political realm until mm-hmm. there is order in the souls of every human being right. who is a part of that political realm. It's a classic maxim among some political thinkers that statecraft is really soulcraft. So if mm-hmm. our souls aren't ordered, if our souls are not in prayer and in conversation with God, then we'll have a difficulty ordering the public realm in a way that does justice uh, mm-hmm. to all persons. Yeah, and I think we think about that. I mean, even as someone who tries to keep a daily prayer time, sometimes it that becomes backwards. You know, if I, I do everything that I do in the world and then I can come back and take this time, but really that time of prayer and that time of submerging myself in the word and the word informs everything that we do in public life and will actually make us do that differently. Will make us do that better, will make us be able to understand really what the fullness of the work that we're doing is if we first allow God to inform us and conform us. There's this little chapel over um in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and the quote over it is, saints pray more and get more done in less time. You know, because sometimes you think, oh, we're so busy to pray, but the saints devoted themselves first and foremost to prayer, and then they were culture changers, radical culture changers because of that. Modeling a different way, right? Mm-hmm. So we, we'll talk in a moment of our bricklayer segment um, about the ways, the practical ways in which we can transform uh, the political realm, but we first need to re- remember that we have to ask ourselves who is forming us right how are we informed and uh, formed by the word and formed by sacrament and the life of grace and the life of prayer so that we do not conform uh, we want to form ourselves form our souls inform our consciences and our political life so that we can transform political society but not conform to the broader society as a whole we'll be back in a moment with the final segment of our podcast, the Bricklayer segment, but just a reminder that we were discussing the address of Pope Benedict, September 2008, to representatives of the world of culture in Paris, France, definitely on this 10th anniversary of a prophetic and important document, something to keep in mind as we uh, form ourselves to be soldiers in the public arena. If you're listening to this podcast, the elections on November 6th in Minnesota have passed. We have will have a new legis- newly composed legislature, a new governor, new attorney general, um, senator. There were U.S. senator elections, perhaps some new congresspersons as well. Uh, what do we do now? Uh, are we stuck with what we have, or can we work to tr- still transform the public order? It starts with relationships, right? Mm-hmm. It's a civic friendship, politics is in the classic sense we have you know we live in some of us live in minneapolis um, polis the greek word uh, the society the city a place of friendship where we sit down and discuss together how ought we to order our lives in pursuit of the common good not the individual good but the common good but to have civic friendship to have that discussion in a civil way we need relationships and it goes back to civic friendship and relationships how do we do that rachel Yeah, well, it's really straightforward, basically, like you would build any other human relationships. And I think sometimes we think of it differently because once someone gets elected, we think of them on a different pedestal or on a different plane than us. But we've talked a lot on the podcast about the importance of being a resource and the importance of your legislators and those who represent you being a resource. So, you know, as Jason said, now that um, 
the elections are passed and over. We have a lot of newly elected officials in your area. And whether or not maybe the person that you voted for um, was elected and you're really happy about that, or maybe that's not the case and you're frustrated about that. But either way, this is the time to really continue engagement. So before we encouraged you to simply reach out to the people that were candidates. And now that they're your newly elected officials, you have a new Minnesota House member, you have new city council members, um, new senators. Um, even if you did not vote for that person, try to reach out um, and really simply, doesn't have to be a long conversation, welcome them. Say, you know, welcome to the legislator, legislature, say who you are, what you do for work, say that you're a Catholic, um, and say, hey, I just want to be a resource for you. I wanted to catch you at the beginning of your term, um, and these are some of the stuff that I'm interested in. Again, can be a five-minute conversation. Um, so you can do that in a lot of different ways. They'll be getting situated um, kind of in their new offices and their new places. So at the Minnesota um, legislature website will provide you with the information. You can just search um, with your address and find out who is now newly representing you, and they'll have the email address, um, the phone number, so you can write an email, a written letter, do a phone call. Um, you can try to get together, invite them for coffee um, if you want to, just really in any way that you feel comfortable. State legislators are really accessible. People mm -hmm. don't realize that. Or local elected, all local elected officials right. are, for that matter, because they, they um, run and get elected in very small legislative districts. It only takes 10,000 people typically uh, to elect someone to the state capitol in the uh, state house, for example. And people know, legislators know acutely that if five or ten people are upset about an issue in their district, they can make a lot of noise during one of these small elections. So they're very sensitive to mm -hmm. what their constituents are thinking. They want to hear from you. They want you to be a, res a resource because no one has a monopoly on knowledge on everything going on at the capitol. There are thousands of right. bills introduced every year, and legislators not want to know what people in their district are thinking about things and this is where you can be a resource they care about typically two or three big things and then they'll listen to their caucus or you know their friends on everything else you can be one of their friends and be a resource even if you didn't vote for that person you're not going to agree with every legislator on every issue i don't agree with my wife on every issue <laughs> so we can't expect universal agreement but just because there's disagreement on one thing it doesn't mean you can't work with a legislator on another issue. Right. And think about how how great would it be that at the beginning of your legislator's term or your city council person's term that right when they get into office, they know you. And from that point on, you are a resource. An issue comes up, they think, oh, I know um, Tom. I know he's a Catholic in my district. He reached out to me. I wonder what he would think about this issue. Or I know what he would think about this issue. And that's going to make a difference. To be able to build that relationship right off the bat and to be able to build that goodwill of welcoming that person and building that positive relationship over just being in the same community is going to be so effective down the road and also a great example into how Catholics approach politics differently. Some of the best advocates of the Capitol are citizen lobbyists. They're not paid, but they've become an expert on an issue, and they're really a resource and a friend to legislators on all sides of the aisle. And uh, because they're willing to be friends with people, they become go-to resources right. for even legislators to kind of get the pulse of what's going on. So mm -hmm. you, one does, doesn't need to be a full-time citizen legislator, but you can be an important resource for legislators in your district giving them the pulse of what people in the community are thinking and certainly what Catholics are thinking about. And that's important to bring the Catholic voice and let them know there is a strong Catholic voice 
at the the local parish or the multiple parishes and bring that voice and that perspective into the public arena. Right. And again, this conversation just can be super straightforward. It doesn't have to be a huge issue briefing on your part of all the important things. It's just a high welcome. And I'm looking forward to continuing to build a relationship. You don't need to be an expert on the issue. The very fact that you've raised an issue, Mm -hmm. expressed a position on it is going to be enough uh, for that legislator. They don't expect you to have a white paper and be fully briefed on everything and know all the nuances. But if uh, you're really concerned about the legalization of assisted suicide, they want to know that. Mm -hmm. If you think uh, social welfare benefits have been cut too deeply, they want to know that too. Or there's any number of issues under the sun. So you don't have to be an expert. Anyone can do this. It's not only your right to petition the government for uh, redress of your grievances, Mm -hmm. but um, it's their responsibility to listen to them as well. Yeah, and it'll be a really good starting point um, for that relationship or if you've already started building one during their candidacy to continue that relationship. And then you can keep on continuing that relationship at Catholics at the Capitol 2019. We've talked about this before. Some of you might have been at our 2017 event, but registration is open. Um, It's going to be February 19th, 2019 to 1919. And you can register now at catholicsatthecapital.org. Do not wait to register. This event um, is going to have some amazing speakers. It's going to fill up quick. Um, So as soon as you hear this, get on your computer and register to reserve your spot for that. At Catholics at the Capitol, not only will you be inspired and engaged to deepen your commitment to faithful citizenship, but you'll also receive the tools you need mm-hmm. to be as effective as well and do so uh, in a community of thousands of Catholics who are there with you uh, sharing that experience of friendship and fellowship uh, at a, in St. Paul and at our state capital. It's going to be an amazing experience. Uh, the last one in 2017 was phenomenal. People loved it. And um, we're expecting a fantastic event again in 2019. So be sure to register catholicsofthecapital.org. We appreciate you listening today uh, for the next episode of our podcast. Uh, for this episode and all of our episodes, you can go to SoundCloud. Join us on Facebook at MN Catholic, on Twitter at MN Catholic, C-O-N-F as in Frank, and check out our YouTube channel as well. Again, a big thank you to Relevant Radio 1330 AM and our sponsor, the State Council, uh, Minnesota State Council of the Knights of Columbus. The Knights of Columbus are building the domestic church. Make sure you share this podcast with all your friends and family, your friends and your neighbors, your friends and your enemies, and especially your enemies. (laughs) And what better way to end our podcast of great conversation and great reflection with some great sacred music. Today, we have the National Catholic Youth Choir from Collegeville, Minnesota, performing the Hymn to St. Cecilia. We celebrate the Feast of St. Cecilia on November 22nd. She is the patroness of musicians and is one of the most revered early virgin martyrs of the church. Despite her vow of virginity, her parents married her off. She converted her husband to Christianity, and he in turn respected her vow of virginity. She was martyred by a really bad Roman emperor. Here is the National Catholic Youth Choir in Collegeville with the hymn to St. Cecilia. God bless you. Thanks for listening. <laughs>